You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I wonder if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at this morning verses 12 to 16. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. And uh, we're back into our teaching series through the book of Philippians. The series is called To Live is Christ. And the title of my sermon today is Getting a Biblical Perspective on the Christian Life. Getting a Biblical Perspective or a True Perspective on the Christian life. Let me ask you, do you have a biblical perspective on the Christian life? Like, do you, uh, do, do you have a, a true perspective on what it is to be a Christian and an accurate understanding of what it is and what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus? And now, in asking that, some of you might honestly just say, why should I care? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons you should care, one of which is that if you have a a skewed way of thinking about the Christian life, then you might be frustrated with or disappointed with something that's not even the real thing. You might be just be disappointed or let down by something that's actually, it's just your own version of what Christianity is, not what the Bible says it is. I think if you're going to be disheartened or disillusioned about Jesus, then you should at least know what it is to know Jesus before you decide you're disillusioned with that. Uh, so I, I think it matters. I think if you are a Christian, the Bible, we'll see our text today, calls us, if you're a mature believer, then we're called to have a, a biblical right perspective on the Christian life. You know, I find this, that a lot of people think that being a Christian is just a matter of, of having a religion to which they adhere or a set of ideas with which they agree. Or others would say that it's, you know, it's something you are by virtue of your upbringing. When you read the Bible, though, you actually find that none of those things are accurate descriptors, accurately capture what it is to be a Christian. And again, if you've got a skewed view of Christianity, then you might mistake what is otherwise perhaps an empty kind of feeling kind of religion with the real thing. I mean, after all, I mean, some people do feel that way about Christianity. They feel kind of empty and let down, like there isn't much there. I mean, you you hear people talk about joy in the Lord, about satisfaction in Christ, about the glory of God, but find it, maybe you just find it underwhelming. And you wonder, are these people just sort of putting it on? Or am I missing something? That's a serious place to be. For some of you, maybe you'd see the Christian life like I see sushi. I don't know if you like sushi or not. I don't like sushi. I don't like the look of it. I don't even the concept of it bothers me. I think if it comes out of the water, it needs to go through a frying pan before it ends up on my plate. That's just me. Now, I got a friend of mine who is a food connoisseur. Everybody needs a foodie in their life to help guide them through their culinary choices. I got this, this friend of mine, and uh, uh, you know, we were going out for lunch one time, and, and I just said, I'll, I'll go anywhere. Anything but sushi, though. No sushi. He's like, why, why sushi? Like, I, I don't like sushi. He's like, have you ever tried sushi? Have you ever actually had sushi? And I'm like, yes, I have. I was ready for this. I knew he probably asked me, yes, I have. He says, where did you have it? It was at an all-you-can-eat buffet. He says, no, that's not sushi. So what do you mean it's not sushi? He said, no, no, no. You see, real sushi comes from like a real sushi restaurant. It's like you never actually had sushi. And so his point is, as well, that no, here's the thing. 
I ain't eating sushi. Okay, I'm sorry. It's, I can't do it. I can't do it. it. Don't ask me about the sushi. I'm not interested. And I don't want to offend you, so let's just get it straight here. Okay, no sushi, thanks. But I understand his point. His point is, is that it's like, no, if you're really gonna, ha- if you're really gonna not like something, then at least try the real thing from an authentic sushi restaurant before you say, I'm not down with that. Because the all-you-can-eat buffets, it's not real. I get, I mean, it is sushi, but it's, it's not well done. It's not, it's not as good as it could be. So his point is, is that you don't get all down on something until you know for sure you're clear on what it is. You've got it right what it is you're down on. And that's what I'm saying to some of you today. I want you to have a, a biblical view, a true view of the Christian life, because I think some are disheartened or underwhelmed by Christianity, not because Jesus lacks anything, but because you've got a skewed view. You, you've been eating sushi at the all-you-can-eat buffet. You've, you've got a skewed view of what Christianity is. And so the thing you're disappointed in or underwhelmed by isn't the real thing. It's just your skewed version of the real thing. That's where this text is going to help us today. It's going to help us to get really clear on what the Christian life is. It give to us a biblical perspective on Christianity. Now, Paul, in the context, he was addressing, you'll recall, the first part of Philippians. If you're here with us when we were studying this earlier, the first part of the chapter, Paul was addressing some doctrinal heresy. And basically, he was, he was going after this idea that was prevalent in those days, that if you want to be saved, like if you want to know you're going to heaven, then you've got to adhere to the Mosaic law. In other words, there is a kind of thinking that says, no, if you want to be saved, you got to save you. You got to do some things. You've got to achieve some things. You got to accomplish some things. And, and Paul said, Paul said, you know, that, that whole idea is, he called it rubbish. It says rubbish. It's nonsense. It's garbage. And he reminded us when we were in the first part of Philippians 3, he, we saw that Paul reminded us of the gospel. And the gospel is this. It's that you don't save you. Jesus saves you. That's the good news. Jesus saves you, not you. So, and, and you remember if you were here, Paul gave kind of his spiritual resume. He's, here's all kinds of things that I used to think saved me until I met Jesus. And I realized that none of those things save me. There aren't of any value. It's just, it's just garbage. It's, it's of no good. Law keeping, impressive spiritual resumes don't get anybody into heaven. Only Jesus does. And so Paul rejoiced in the fact that by faith in Christ, he was forgiven of his sins and counted righteous by faith. And he's proclaiming, you know, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Now, it's probably at this point that he anticipated that someone would ask, okay, so what now? So what now? So now you've, you're saved by Jesus. So what now? Do you just sort of sit back? In fact, at the end of the, the previous passage, in verse 10 and 11, he just look at it. He says, talks about this life that he has in Christ. He talks about that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So he's just looking forward. I've got this life in Jesus. And, and uh, he anticipates you that someone might ask, okay, so you're saved. Now what? Do you just sort of just kind of wait for heaven? Like, do you just sit back? What, like, what, do, you, what do you do? And Paul answers and says, no, emphatically not. He says, I haven't arrived. Notice verse 12, what he says, the beginning of our text today. Not that I have already obtained this. So talk about being conformed to Christ. Like, I'm not totally conformed to Jesus yet. God's still working on me. Not that I've already obtained this. I'm not raised from the dead. Or am already perfect. Right? I've still got God's working on me. I've got growing to do in him. 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see, I belong to Jesus. I already belong to him, but I, it's not sitting back. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Now, here is a biblical perspective on the Christian life, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind... Now, for some of you, this will be your new favorite verse in the Bible, your favorite phrase in the Bible. Forgetting what lies behind. Praise God. Amen. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. You got to say it that way. When you're reading your Bible and your devotions, you got straining forward. Do you know how to strain forward? We'll talk about that. Straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on. Think of like you're pressing your, your, your coffee connoisseurs with your coffee press. You know what I'm talking about? You press that thing. I'm, I'm, uh, there's, there's vigor here. There's purpose. I, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Whatever that is, that sounds fantastic. Verse 15, notice that those of us who are mature think this way. So this is so, he's talking about how we see the Christian life. That those of us who are mature, you're spiritually mature in Jesus, you're growing up in Jesus, then think this way about the Christian life. This is how you're to understand it. This is how you're to see it. That those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything, like if in any part of your life, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold to what is true, to what we have attained. Now, when it comes to rightly understanding the Christian life, I think that this text shows us that there's, there's three things that we need to grasp. First, uh, Paul tells us about something about becoming a Christian. Second, Paul tells us something about being a Christian. And then third, Paul tells us something about the ultimate blessing of a Christian or for a Christian. Okay? So, becoming, being... And the ultimate blessing. That's where we're going. Let's start with the first thing. Becoming a Christian. It's critically important to see here that becoming, that Paul shows us that becoming a Christian is the beginning, not the end. When you, if you're going to get a good, accurate, excuse me, a good, accurate, biblical understanding of the Christian life, you have to recognize that coming to Jesus, believing on Jesus, turning away from your sins to Jesus, Becoming a Christian is the beginning, but it's not the end. It's, the, it's a start. It's a glorious start. It's a necessary start, but it's not the end. It's just, it's the beginning. It's critically important. You see that? He says, not that I have already attain, obtained this. Well, not really already obtained what? Well, he's not talking about obtaining salvation from sin because he's just said quite a bit actually about salvation from sin in the first part of the chapter. Notice 2 verse 12 what he says. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you see that at the end of the verse? Christ Jesus has made me his own. So I am saved. I belong to Jesus. I'm his. So he's not, when he says he hasn't obtained something, he's not talking about obtaining salvation from sin. He has salvation from sin. He is counted righteous. So what is it that he's not already obtained? Well, I think in the context here, he shows that what he hasn't obtained is the completion of his salvation. That God is sanctifying him, and one day God will glorify him. Then he will be with Jesus in heaven, complete. So there is, there's, there's more to come. I'm saved fully and for good, but there's more to come. What I have is a glorious beginning, but it's not the end. It's the start, but it's not the finish. 
I'm saved, but it's just the beginning. God's still working on me. Remember he told the Philippians that, like way back in chapter one, he said, he said that God, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. There's a good start because you believe on Jesus, but God's working on you to make you more and more like Jesus, to use you. And one day he's going to finish that project. See, understand, loved ones, that becoming a Christian is a what? It's a beginning, not the end. Are you here? Is this mic on? Okay. Becoming a Christian is the beginning, not the end. Thanks for humoring me. It's encouraging. Becoming a Christian is a must. Like, this is what Jesus said. Mark 1 and 15, repent and believe the gospel. You, you must repent of your sins. Like, you must come to a place of saying, I am not going the opposite way of Jesus anymore. I'm trusting Jesus. And I'm committing my life to him. You must do that. John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. If you don't believe in him, you will perish. And you won't have everlasting life. But if you do believe in him, you do trust in him, you won't perish, but you will have eternal life. You must believe on him. You must trust in him. You must turn to him. Look away from yourself to him. I love how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5 and 20. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What an awesome verse. We implore you, like we, we call on you, we plead with you. Be reconciled to God. Become friends with God. That's what Jesus has done in dying, has made a way for you to be friends with God, to know him. It's a call to faith. It's a call to salvation. Dear loved one, you must come to him. You must turn to him. You must put your trust in him. You must start a friendship with him, responding to what he has done to you for you on the cross, responding in faith. And trusting in him. Have you done that? Have you done that? I'd love today, even if you want to learn more about that, and be sure that you have, I'd love to talk with you after. I'd love to. In fact, I got something, a little something I'll give you you can read to help you better understand that. So please come and see me. I'll be right up here after the service. If you want to make sure, you don't, don't play games with this. I want to know. But really what you need to do is you need to trust in Jesus. And when you do, it's an awesome thing. The Bible talks about God works an awesome transaction in you. You don't see it with your eyes, but it's real and it happens where you are born again. You're brought from spiritual death to life and you enter into a forever friendship with God. It's awesome. But it's a start you must have. Do you have it? If you do, that's awesome. But recognize it's just the beginning. It's not the end. Becoming a Christian is a must, but many people make the mistake of thinking that that's all there is to it, just becoming a Christian. Maybe you said a prayer when you were nine or 29 or 59, and you've mistakenly been thinking that that's all there is to it. But thinking that way would be sort of like the person who thinks of their thinks that their marriage just consists of their wedding. You can think about that. I mean, weddings are important, right? If you're married, your wedding was important. Maybe it was a great big thing with strobe lights and smoke machines. Or maybe it was a really simple, simple ceremony, quietly, like maybe you eloped or something like that. That's a thing in my family. I didn't elope, but others have. Maybe it's all good. Listen, however it went down, that wedding ceremony was really significant. Really significant. You made, it, you made a, a covenant commitment to your spouse. And it's wonderful. 
But it's just the beginning, isn't it? It's the start of something. It isn't the finish. See, there's the wedding, but the wedding is just that moment in time that is at the start of the marriage. And it's the same thing with becoming a Christian. You must become a believer. You must believe on Jesus. But understand that's the beginning of a life in him, not the end of it. And that's what Paul is reminding us here. He says, not that I've already obtained. I don't consider that I've made it my own. In other words, I am saved, but I don't consider that that's all there is to it. But it's, it's a life. It's, it's a new life. I understand that becoming a Christian is a start. But it's a start, not a finish. It's the start of a life lived for God. This is how Jesus puts it. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You say, what, what's bearing fruit? Well, what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about when we, when we bear fruit as Christians, it's, it's we do the things that God wants us to do. In our lives, our lives produces attitudes and actions and words and passions that honor God, that come from him, that he wants to see in our lives. And Jesus says, we glorify God, we make much of God by living for God, by bearing fruit. And then he says, uh, he says, where is it here? And in doing that, you so prove to be my disciples. See, the evidence that you know Jesus, that you're a Christian, is not just in the fact that you made a commitment to Jesus, but that you're living for Jesus, which is crucial. Charles Spurgeon famously said, the faith that hasn't changed you is the faith that hasn't saved you. That can be a little unnerving, but it's an important insight to remind us Yes, I must turn and believe on Jesus. But when I do believe on him savingly, it results in a life that's lived for him. Not perfectly. Paul himself said, I, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfected. But I'm changing. And he's working on me. Remember Philippians 2.13? God it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, becoming a Christian is beginning, is the beginning, not the end. John says in 1 John 2 and 29, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. In other words, good works are the evidence of the life that we have in Jesus. Titus 2 and 14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the, the very nature of saving faith is it results in people who are passionate about living for God. Not by our own willpower or our own choice, but by God's working in us. You see, becoming a Christian is crucial. It's a glorious beginning, but it's not the end. It's not the end. That's why Paul says, I don't think as though, I don't consider myself to have made it or to have arrived. I'm still growing in the Lord. Dear loved one, understand that the, being a Christian is not a state of mind. It's not about honoring your upbringing. It's not even about having made a decision or a commitment at some point in your life. Rather, it's about a life changed by God. It's a life animated by the Spirit of God. It's about a life that's set apart under the Son of God. Therefore, it's lived with purpose and with passion. And that brings us to the second thing Paul wants us to see. While becoming a Christian is the beginning, not the end, we see, secondly, that being a Christian involves reaching forward, not sitting back. Reaching forward, 
not sitting back. Notice he uses that phrase in verse um, uh, 13. There it is. The middle of verse 13, that phrase, but one thing I do. Do you see that phrase? But one thing I do. I mean, that sounds focused and intentional, doesn't it? Paul's like, here's what I do. I don't consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward or literally reaching for, some of your Bibles say reaching out or reaching forward. Straining forward, reaching forward. Oh, I forgot. You got to say straining forward, right? To what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Being a Christian involves reaching forward, not sitting back. That straining forward, I think Paul calls to mind some athletic imagery. I was reading this week that in antiquity, they had chariot races where uh, some kind of large beast is pulling around a two-wheeled wagon. And uh, I guess it's sort of like the Calgary Stampede, but different, different attire probably. And uh, they probably didn't have beaver tail there, but they, uh, they uh, you know what beaver tail, they, you know, like deep fried bread. Oh my goodness. Anyway, way better than sushi, let me tell you. <laughs> they had these two wheeled chariots and the riders on there. And it says a thing, you kind of got a balance on there and you're straining for it. I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just reading about it. Sounds intense, but there's a straight a going forward. Paul probably more likely has in mind good old fashioned runners. Right, like you see the runners in the in the the summer games are going around that track there, chasing the gold medal. And I love the you know the slow motion of the the hundred meter dash. You've seen the slow motion where it's just like like every fiber of their body is pushing toward. And you see their faces flapping and the muscles clenching, and they're going forward. And they get close to the finish line. And when they do, what do they do when they get close to the finish line? Right, they lean forward and just to, to get over. That's the idea here straining forward like, no, I don't want a snack. No, I don't want to say hi. No, I'm not taking autographs. No, I don't care what's on social media. I'm going for one thing here. It's reaching forward, not sitting back. The goal, the goal is the finish line of heaven. Knowing Christ more fully forever. Paul's like, I want to know Christ. I want to serve Christ. I want to make much of Christ Not in order that I may gain heaven, I'm already going there. Not to get him to accept me because he already has accepted me. But I'm doing it because this this is the life that I'm called to. This is the Christian life. To be honest with you, I think too many professing Christians passively exist in pews rather than pursuing after God, pursuing him. Not in the word not applying the word, not praying, not serving, not sharing their faith, not worshiping. And the result, I think, often is a disappointment, a disillusionment. Like people begin to think, is this all there is to it? It doesn't seem like much. And of course it doesn't seem like much because they've not made it much. They've got a skewed view of what the Christian life is. But the reality is, is that it is an awesome life that we're striving toward the goal. The goal I mean, it's awesome, right? The upward, the upward call of God, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a goal ahead of us. And it's not in question like we won't make it. No, we're striving toward it because we're going to make it. And what you do in the Lord when you're going to make it is you strive. It's what you do. If we're going to stretch forward, though, if we're going to strain forward, then it requires, Paul says, two things. Two things are key in straining forward. Forgetting 
and focusing. Forgetting and focusing. Forgetting what? Oh, that's the wind. There's the wind blowing through the windows there. Just like that sounded like somebody in distress over there. It's just the windows. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, forgetting. How ironic, isn't that? Don't you think? Forgetting what? Forgetting, he says, what lies behind. I said a few moments ago, for some of you, this would be like one of your favorite verses in the Bible because you got some things you'd like to forget. And I'm giving you a biblical warrant here this morning to forget them, to put them out of your mind. What does Paul mean when he talks about forgetting? I think he has particularly in mind the, the life that he lived in the past. I say that because, again, in the first part of the chapter, he reminisced about the life he once lived, striving really to try to save himself or to prove himself. But then he met Jesus and realized, I don't save me. Jesus saves me. Forgetting what lies behind. If you're going to forget what lies behind, it means anything in your past that will hinder you living for Jesus now, you need to not dwell on. You need to not dwell on it. Forgetting the life you once lived in the past. For some of us, if we're honest, we find ourselves tempted at times to drift back into the life we've left. Maybe some people come back into your life recently and you find yourself sort of drifting back into a life you once lived. Paul says, no, 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 don't drift back into it. Forget it. Don't dwell on it. Don't go back to that. For others... It's maybe we look back on the life we once lived with some kind of fondness. Like, weren't those the days? You know, I had a lot of fun back in those days. And then what? And then finish the sentence. What, you met Jesus and he ruined everything? What? Is is that where that's going to go? Don't look back on your BC life, your before Christ life. Don't look back on fondness with that. You were going to hell. You were going to a lost eternity. There was, there was nothing good about that life. Don't look back on fondness. Forget about it. Put it out of your mind. See, what happens is we get dwelling on that, and we can fool ourselves into thinking, that ah, a little bit of compromise, a little bit of what I used to be is okay. No, 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 no. You're, you're straining forward, not, not sitting back. There's some forgetting. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 9 and, and 62. Listen, this is tough, but listen to this. He says, no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus, just in case you're wondering, is not talking about farming here. He's talking, he's using a picture, a farming picture of someone who makes a commitment to Christ, but then says, oh, but I guess there's no more getting high. No more going to those places and spending all my time with those people. Paul says that person, or Jesus says that person's not fit for the kingdom. Thinking that her old life was a good life is folly. We need to forget it. Put it behind you. Probably even more prevalent is forgetting the shame of your past. A more prevalent need is forgetting the shame of your past. I think Paul was genuinely ashamed in many ways. When he looked back on things in his past, things that he surfaced as he reminisced in the first part of the chapter. And the reality is, is if you and I are not careful, the devil has a way of taking the things of the past to defeat us in the present. He'll say things like, who do you think you are? You know, you step up to serve Jesus. You're welcoming people to church. You're teaching and harvest kids. You're leading a small group. You're sharing your faith. And the devil comes along and says, who do you think you are? Who are you fooling? 
I know you. I know what you've done. I know where you've been. I know you. Who do you think you really are? Makes us feel sometimes unworthy of serving. To which, of course, you must respond, I know who I am. I'm a forgiven sinner. I'm a child of God. That's who I am. Oh, you, you want to remember, you're talking about who I used to be. Oh, oh, who I used to be. That's not who I am now. You, see, you got it all wrong. I guess you didn't get the brochure. You didn't get the program. You see, Jesus has come into my life, and he's forgiven me for my sin. So, yeah, I mean, you can bring it all back, but Jesus already knows about it, and actually he's forgiven it, and the judge declares me not guilty, and in the end, his opinion is the only one that matters, not yours. So, so get that stuff away from me. I'm forgetting about it. I'm not going there. That's what we do. That's how you forget. You go back to the cross. Sometimes it's the guilt of our past. I mean, think about, think about the guilt that it would have been easy for Paul to live with. He persecuted the church. He says that in, in earlier in chapter 3, he remembered the fact that he was a zealous persecutor of the church. Do you think that Paul could have been many times tempted to be, to be just defeated and crushed by the guilt of his past? Maybe you are too. The guilt of your past. You look back in your past and you see relational failures, sexual failures, you see, you lost integrity. You got some things you regret, some things you said, some things you didn't say. And it can creep up on you and make you begin to doubt your very salvation. What do we do with that? Paul says, you forget about it. I don't think he means like it goes out of your mind so you can't remember, not that kind of forgetting. I don't think we can forget like that. I think he means not dwelling on it. It's behind you, so leave it behind you, and instead be focusing, forgetting, and then focusing, or he uses straining forward or reaching forward, focusing instead of, so in other words, forget about the things that are going to hinder your faith in Jesus, your obedience to Jesus, and now strain forward to that which, with fueling your straining forward with that which will encourage your faith in the Lord, straining forward, focusing Focusing on what fuels faith and obedience to Christ. Living on mission. Heading toward heaven. That's where I'm going. That's my destination. Maybe think of it last night. I was watching some lacrosse. I love lacrosse. And uh, one of the things I like about lacrosse, actually, is they give you a weapon you can use. Like, if you watch it, right? Like, they whack each other with that, that stick and everything. There's some body checking and everything. And I was watching last night, and a guy had the ball, and uh, he was going around behind the net. And two big behemoths met him back there behind the net. And they... Boom! They slammed him into the boards and bashed him, but he still had the ball. So he's a little staggered a bit, but he's pushing through and he's trying to get to the front. Then these two big guys, they slam him and they grab him, they jostle him, they're whacking him. But the whole, the determination in his face, he's, he's pushing through, he's going to the front of the net. Doesn't matter what's in the way, he's straining forward. I was watching this game, like, that's it, that's my sermon tomorrow. This is what we're talking about, straining, straining forward, reaching forward. Or when they score a goal, I mean, if you're not into the cross, I don't, you, I don't know what kind of a life you have, but it's a it's sensational. When they score a goal, it's awesome because you can't step in the crease or the goal is disallowed. So when you're going toward the net, they make these awesome plays. Lacrosse fans, you know what I'm talking about. They'll run toward the net and they'll push through players and they got the, the ball on their stick and they'll leap through the air because you can't be touching in the crease. They'll leap through the crease in the air and tuck it in over the goalie, like sacrificing life and limb and laying it on the line to get the goal. And the only thing missing in lacrosse is the European soccer announcers. Go! That's the only thing missing. 
It's awesome. But if you, next time you watch the cross, you think of Philippians 3, because that's the Christian life. That's what God's working in you to will and to work, that kind of straining forward toward the goal, not the goal of the cross goal, but the goal of heaven, the goal of more of Jesus. The goal of being closer to him. Focusing, focusing. So here's the discipline I want to encourage you in. That when you're recalling the regrets of your past, or maybe your own just bitter disgust with yourself, where you're tempted to fall into resentment, or tempted to seek revenge about things in the past, or just tempted to coast, say to yourself these words, I'm not going there. I'm not going there because Jesus has already been there for me and taken care of it. I'm not going there. Instead, say, Lord, what do you want for me here? What do you want me to do here? What you got for me here today? That's what I want. Because my, my joy is in you, and I am who you say I am, and I'm here to do what you call me to do, and my qualifications to serve you don't come from my own goodness, but from Jesus. So I can forget about my past, laying it at the cross. Forgetting and focusing. If I want to reach forward and not sit back, I need to forget that which hinders and focus on that which fuels faith. Because becoming a Christian, becoming a Christian is the beginning, not the end. And being a Christian is reaching forward, reaching forward, not sitting back. Thirdly, the ultimate blessing for the Christian is a prize that far outweighs our pain. The ultimate blessing for the Christian is a prize that far outweighs our pain. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal. What's the goal? He says, it's the prize. I press on toward the goal for the prize. Okay, well, what's the prize then? Well, the prize is that of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's the call to heaven. And when you get to heaven, what is the greatest, bestest prize there is in heaven? What is it? Who is it? It's Jesus. It's not the gold streets. It's not the mansion. It's not the peace that will be there. It's not the relational harmony. I mean, all those things will be there. But those are just sort of add-ons. They're, they're, they're throw-ins. No, the, the real glory, the real joy, the real satisfaction, the real prize, the real goal, the real goal is Jesus. And being with him and basking in his glory, delighting ourselves in him. That's what Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 2 and 14. To this, God calls you through our gospel. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the ultimate prize of the Christian, the ultimate, the bestest part of heaven, bestest is not a word, but it's a good word. The bestest part of heaven is Jesus because he's the one that satisfies. He's the one alone who can thrill your soul. The Bible says of God that no good thing will he withhold from those who trust him. And so he gives us the best thing and that's Jesus. You understand, loved ones, that the longing, the, the, the true longing of every faithful person we read in the Bible, the true longing is the Lord himself. 
mean, Paul himself said that, Philippians 1 and 23. He said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Who talks like that? To depart, like not depart like St. Catherine's, like to depart the planet, to die. My desire, he didn't have a death wish, he had a Jesus wish. I want to be with Jesus. And he said, that's far better. What was the longing of Paul's heart? To be with Christ, unfettered fellowship, unhindered communion. Psalm 27, verse 4. Listen to this. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. The psalmist is sort of like, imagine you played a game with the psalmist and said, okay, imagine, imagine you can just ask one thing for God, which is ridiculous because if you know the Lord, you love him, you can ask him all kinds of things, but just for pretend. We say to the psalmist, okay, you just ask, let's play a game. You can ask one thing of God, one thing, what would it be? The psalmist is like, that's easy. I'll tell you right now what that is. The one thing I'd ask, Psalm 27, verse 4, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and, inquire, and to inquire in his temple. What's the one thing the psalmist says? The one thing I want, if I could just have one thing from God, is to look upon his glory to dwell where he dwells and to gaze upon his beauty. Dear brother, sister in Jesus, that's your prize. And it's coming. You are going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And you will, you will in your risen flesh, you will gaze upon the glory of God. And it will be far weightier than the troubles and the trials you're facing today. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 1611. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, one of the problems that we have in this world when it comes to happiness and satisfaction is what people call the law of diminishing returns. You know what I mean by the law of diminishing returns? Like there's something that you enjoy that's really exciting and thrilling for a time, but then eventually it becomes not enough. It's like, it's like when you, you listen to that song, they're just like, oh, this is such a great song. And I get like that too. I just get, I just get all in. I find a song that I love and I listen to it. I listen to it again and again and again and again. I like listening to my music loud too in the car. Just I get the beat and everything. I'm singing it in the shower. I'm singing it everywhere. I'm singing it in my office and listening to it again and again and again. I love this song. I love this. I love this song. But what happens is, is eventually I get listening to the song so much that I go from loving it to being sick of it. Just it gets to a point where you're just like, oh, that, that song again, that's, oh, that song again. Or somebody will be singing that's like, oh, yeah, I know, I used to like that. I used to love that song. Now I don't even want to listen to it anymore because I get tired of it. That's what we're like because the thing is, is this world is, is like that. There's, there's all kinds of things that thrill us and interest us and excite us and, and, and for a moment satisfy us. But eventually we just find that actually nothing truly satisfies. We actually kind of get bored with things. And we're like, okay, well, what, what, what else do you got for me? Now think about the true prize of heaven and what God has done for us there. God says, no good thing will I withhold from you. There's a, there's a prize for us. And it's an all-satisfying prize. So, so here we are. What, what, does, what could God give us? What could God give us that would ever and always satisfy us, ever and always thrill us? And not for a moment, but enduringly with increasing greatness. 
What could he give us that will fully satisfy, fully and forever? What could he give us? Himself. Himself. Jesus. And that's the prize. And when you stand before him, the troubles you're facing today, and many of you face troubles, the sorrows you're enduring today, the deep, dark valleys you're trudging to today, through today, all of the pains and problems in your life in that day will seem to you so small, so insignificant. It'll be, at worst, the memory of a long-ago bad dream as you bask forever in the presence of Jesus. A number of years ago, I met a lady. Her name was Donna. And she came to the, the church that we were attending. And probably sometime I'll tell you her story a little more fully, but suffice to say today that Donna received a terrible diagnosis of terminal cancer. And a couple of things happened. First of all, she realized that she was going to die. And she didn't have long. She had months to live. The second thing she realized, though, was that she wasn't ready to die. And she was deeply troubled and concerned about what's to come in the afterlife. So troubled, in fact, that in the seniors building where she lived, she was talking to one of her neighbors, and she just confided in her neighbor that, I'm really concerned, I'm troubled. She said, I, I need spiritual guidance. Now, the neighbor looked at her and said something like, I don't really know how to help you, but I do know that there's these people that live across the street. They're real Jesus people. Like they're into the Bible and God and stuff like that. You should go over and talk to them. Now, just as an aside here, get a vision for your life to be those kind of people, right? That the people on your street, they're just like, I don't know totally what they're all about, but they're really into this Jesus. So if you're looking to not, you should go over and knock on their door because they probably help you. No, I can't. Right? Who wants to be that person, right? Want to be that person. So, so Donna, literally... What she did, she finished that conversation. She walks out the front door of her building across the street. One of the kids was sitting on the porch. She says, I need to speak to your mom or dad. Kid goes in, brings out mom and dad, and she tells him, she says, I've received a terminal diagnosis of cancer. I'm going to die. I need spiritual guidance. Can you help me? And so they did what any good Christian would do. They grabbed their Bible. They said, let's, let's open the Bible. They went over to her apartment. They sat down, and they took a couple of hours and explained to her the plan of salvation, told her about what Christ had done for her on the cross, about the resurrection from the dead and shared with her what we share here often, that if you turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus, you'll have your sins forgiven in a home in heaven. And Donna bowed her head and prayed that afternoon and asked Jesus to save her. A short time later, she was baptized and she was baptized at her own insistence. She said, Ross, I want to be baptized and I want to be baptized soon. I said, oh, okay, okay. She says, understand, I'm dying and I want the strength to get in the baptismal to profess publicly my faith in Christ. And so we did it. We baptized her. And we just so enjoyed seeing God work in her to bring her to life internally as she faded externally. Just a few weeks before she died, we were driving somewhere together. And things were just kind of, we were just chatting. And maybe things are kind of quiet. I can't remember, but I do remember this. At one point, she looked at me as I'm driving and she said, you know, Ross, I have a real peace. And then she smiled and she looked out the window and she said, and how could I not when I've got Jesus? Now what occurs to me as I reflect on this passage and think about Donna and her testimony, what occurs to me is that here is a woman who was in many ways a baby Christian. 
brand new, a baby Christian. And yet she had in, in her infancy a clear biblical perspective on the Christian life. Because she knew that even in the face of the pain of cancer and the pain of sorrow and the pain of grief, in the face of the problem, the great travesty of death, she knew that she had something even better that far outweighed those things. And her treasure indeed was this Jesus. And you know what, loved one? That's what I want for you too. That's what I want for you too. Whether you're dying or living, I want you to have that perspective too, that whatever I'm going through, what I have in him, the prize of Jesus far outweighs my pain. To have hope in him and strengthen him. To have a true biblical perspective on the Christian life. Let me ask you this. Is what I'm talking about today, does it match up with your perspective on Christianity? Like, is it possible that the disappointment or frustration or apathy you feel toward the Christian life is because how you see it doesn't actually line up with Scripture? Do you, do you see that becoming a Christian is an important beginning but not the end? Do you see that? Do you, do you see that being a Christian is a passionate pursuit toward a certain prize? Do you see that the ultimate blessing of the Christian is Christ himself, a prize that far outweighs the pressures and problems we're facing today? Do you, do you see that, loved one? Do you see that? Is there any faulty idea in your mind about knowing Jesus that you need to do away with today? Have you drifted from the life God calls you to and need to return? Will you commit these things right now to the Lord? This is what I want to do. I want to close in prayer. The team's going to come and lead us. But I want to address this in prayer because here's the thing. Really, the main application of this is right thinking. So what do we do with our thinking when our thoughts may be skewed or confused? We bring our thinking before the Lord. We, we, we correct it with the truth of Scripture, and then we take it to the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, change this. Make this apply in my mind. So that's why I want to pray. So let, let's pray together and take this before the Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is saturated with a biblical perspective on, Christian, on the Christianity. Lord, that we would not be a religious people, but a people who truly know you, who truly are alive, who are reaching forward, not sitting back. And Lord, would you encourage us, would you fuel us with the great anticipation of the glory that is to come? Encourage our weakened hearts, we pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize and to see that the life you've called us to is a life to be lived. Help us distinguish between the begin, from the beginning from the life you call us to in Jesus. Make us a people who are passionately pursuing you, knowing that our ultimate blessing is Christ. Lord, work these things in our hearts and in our minds, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.